Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode we speak to Cal Flynn. So Cal's an author, she's best known for the book Thicker Than Water, which is an exploration of the role played by an ancestor of hers in Australia and the difficult and in many ways gruesome events he was involved in. She also spoke about her early career and entry into journalism, working for newspapers and then how she decided to take a slightly different route. She's very open and honest about the difficulties she faced at the beginning of her career and we think it's a really interesting episode. Hello, so we're here in a subterranean bunker at HarperCollins HQ with Cal Flynn, the author. Uh, Cal, can you tell us first of all a bit about your initial interest in writing and how, how it became clear to you this was something you'd like to do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I suppose I've been writing as, as long as I've been able to, I guess so. But um, I suppose when I first got into the idea of writing as a career would have been quite late on, I think... Once I got to university, I got involved in student journalism, um, got really quite involved in that, find it uh, like I could see how I might create a career from something that to me was a bit of a hobby. Um, I'd always enjoyed sort of writing fiction or even poetry or, you know, essays, personal essays and diaries and things for for my own benefit. And then um, I could see finally that there was a way that you might be paid to do it. And that was by doing journalism. So um, I got into doing journalism initially through um, research as The Week magazine. And then I did news reporting for a while before splitting off. And now I've been freelance and writing my own thing for about five years, maybe just, just more than that. And so it's been kind of a long process of trying to find that way of making it practically work in terms of financial side of things and also coming back to the kind of writing that I guess I always saw myself doing. Can you um, talk a little bit about your kind of first professional entry into journalism? Kind of when was that? Because obviously, um, you know, we all are at a similar age and we all entered into kind of journalism at around the same time, which is also around the same time that the financials um, mm. quite, you know, changed. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that and those sort of early jobs? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, it well, it was kind of a really grim experience for the first few years of trying to get established. Because um, when we were at university, and actually I knew Simon when we were at university because we did student newspapers roughly the same time, um, and a lot of the people who were coming up the ranks through the student papers all seemed to go into these really starry jobs, all the nationals, and it looked easy. Um, and so this seemed like a fairly straightforward jump from student journalism into sort of at least a junior reporter job, that kind of thing. And then when it came to it, um, I went into a part-time job at the week which was paid which was very lucky that was in London I'm not from London so that adds on a whole layer of of trying to get your foot in the door just being around and sort of being able to do work experience that kind of thing that helped me get my first experience uh, paid experience at the week and that was for six months and I did that three days a week just sort of, I, I was a paid photocopier basically, but it was a great education in how the British media works. So I come in on Monday morning, and there would be a conference in which people would talk about what had been in the newspaper. So the, the week's like a, a news digest magazine. Um, so they talk about not only, you know, news and opinion, but they have a lifestyle section, they have a TV section, all this kind of thing. I mainly worked in the current affairs and on the small regular slots, which are called things like um, It Must Be True, I read it in the tabloids, that kind of thing. So that's the bits that I got to write. Mm. But mainly I was um, photocopying every page in the newspapers that had been ticked off as being one of the main stories and making big files of it, and I'd pass it to the editors, and the editors would read it over and they'd summarise it. 
Um, so what happens of the week is it, it's not so much um, original reporting as in summarising what's been in the press and attributing it to the particular newspapers or magazines. So that was, uh, it was quite hard work. There's a lot of standing on your feet, covered in ink, mm. um, you know, calling people up to, to get the rights to republish things, that kind of thing. Um, very interesting. And we'd, we'd work quite late on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. And then I had Thursdays and Fridays free, um, which initially was quite luxurious. And then I found quite difficult. So I got some part-time work just uh, as, a, again, as a researcher for a website called The Browser, uh, which still exists. It's a great website. Um, and I was sort of an office manager for them um, and again taking taking notes and that kind of thing um, after a while I decided well the week placement came to an end and I decided that this wasn't going fast enough I, I wasn't doing enough of my own writing which is what I really wanted to do so I did an NCTJ qualification like uh, in newspaper journalism at Lambeth College What was that like? Um, it was very vocational mm. um, it was also I don't know it, it, it felt like the end of old media. You know, we talked about when local we, this newspapers. Is like 09 or? Yeah, 09. Yeah. Um, so we were talking about working as local journalists, which had always been a route um, into journalism. Mm. You, you know, traditionally never needed to have a degree. Mm. And this was actually a postgraduate qualification, but it was in that line. You know, the idea would be you'd uh, get an apprenticeship or a junior reporter job mm. on, a, on a local um, paper, learn how to do all those local paper stories a basis in media law, which has been very helpful, actually, and shorthand, which has also been very helpful. And I would recommend people do that. Um, it's not as cheap as it was. I think it was £600 when I did it, and I had to borrow money from a boyfriend um, and then pay it back later when we broke up. <laughs> um, but that so, is substantially yeah. cheaper than, like, a, mm. the city course. A lot, a lot. I mean, there was no chance that I was going to do a postgraduate. But, I mean, partly I didn't see the point. It is such a vocational job, mm. being a reporter... I wasn't that sold on necessarily doing news, but that seemed to me the most obvious way into the industry. I could see that there were entry-level jobs in the way that I couldn't figure out how on earth you could just join and magically be a feature writer. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that, w- that was a very practical decision. And it was an interesting experience, but most people I did the course with have not gone on to stay in journalism. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean... Well, Samira Shackle, who's a good friend of mine and also like a really brilliant uh, journalist, she did it at the same time as me. A girl who went on to, she's now in Australia. There's a girl who was already working at the BBC, but in the sports and wanted to move departments. She was there. And, and a few other people, but of, of our intake of, say, 50, broken between two classes, I think maybe 10 of us are still in journalism and I'm not really sure what what other people are doing whether that's PR or that kind of thing it was old style training Mm. for an industry that's changed so much just since we've graduated Um, and then after that um, well yeah I tried to get a job for a long time (laughs) and how did you eventually get a job and can you talk a little bit about the struggle that a lot of people went through to to get jobs and people still go through yeah absolutely I mean it, it feels like such a lottery at the time, you know, you apply for all these things. I applied for all the graduate schemes that were still running. A lot of them had stopped. Um, AP weren't recruiting the year that I finished my course. Who else? The Telegraph weren't, I think, that year, but they did the year after and I applied and didn't get in. I didn't get into the FT scheme. I didn't get into the Daily Mail scheme. Some of them I got through to second stages. And if anything, that was like more depressing because mm. you, you get really hung up on it. And I'd had a, a big think about, you know, like, could I work for newspapers whose politics I don't agree with and actually you know when you're 21 22 and you've got no money 
it's it's a real thing you have to think about because the the paper you end up at does affect your daily life mm. in in a big way and and the kind of stories you can do and the kind of stories that you can do as a young person really they sort of like they they're like a mood board for the career that you later on mm. have or they can be and it can be quite difficult to sort of break out of that so in a sense I'm kind of glad that I didn't get into I suppose the mail scheme maybe because that's not a paper that I've ever done work for since and mm. I think I worked for the Telegraph later and disagreed I think often with with the leaders that they were writing and and the politics generally of the paper at the time uh, and that caused me a lot of pause for thought not not that you know it, it taught me a lot to work in these places and actually the standard of, of news journalism is extremely high they've got big budgets they've got high expectations um, but it, it depends on on the kind of person that you are and I, I, I sort of worry a lot about wanting to do things that that tie in with my not even political beliefs but sort of I've got a very sort of emotional mm. political system, I guess. Um, sort of How did you get the first job from, yeah. from coming out of the Sensei TJ course? Um, what did I do? I did some work experience. Um, I did a trial at a newswire that was based just outside of Reading, which was interesting and did not suit my personality at all. Um, and so I decided not to do that. And then in the end, finally, I did some work experience at The Observer, which I had an absolute blast. And I just really loved everything about it, everyone on the desk, um, all the stories I was working on and just how open they were to, to young voices and sort of looking for young reporters. And so I went there initially for two weeks, I think, on an unplayed pacement. And then um, I started working on some stories that were sort of longer term stories, um, and then ended up staying for two more weeks being paid for the stories that did end up in the paper with my byline on. And um, that was a big sort of confidence boost. It was very practical, writing, researching, all of that kind of thing. And also just feeling that there was an environment that I could excel in, even if there wasn't a job to get at the end of that. Mm. It suddenly was like, I can do this, I can do this, it's great. And also it's interesting. You learn a lot, you get to... Um, call up all sorts of people and you know ask rude questions and, and get invited to all sorts of but it was just before the general election uh, 2010 this was um, so that was four weeks at the Observer and then at the end of that I realised I also had nothing going so there was another period of panic and then through a friend of a friend was um, a young reporter who had been doing shifts at the Sunday Times on their news desk as a uh, yeah, the the desk assistant, I suppose. Um, she had been doing shifts and she couldn't do some for one reason or another. So I did a week or two weeks worth of paid shifts at the Sunday Times news desk, which was like quite a full-on environment. Mm. But um, again, I quite enjoyed that. And then that ended up after several months. Um, I was only in there for two months, but um, I kept in touch with the editors. And after several months, a uh, position came up initially as a desk assistant. And then shortly after I joined, I was moved to be a junior reporter. So that was a big stroke of luck. Uh, mm. Again, like I can't under, underline enough how much of a lottery the whole experience mm. felt like. And I just felt like I had to float around trying until somebody would offer me something a bit more permanent. And even then, the the job that I had at the... Sunday Times was in theory casual. I worked full time there for 
not as much as two years, I think about 18 months, and it was always a casual position. Um, so yeah, just starting out was, yeah, a long and quite grueling process, I think. <laughs> Did you have a particular beat when you were there, or was it just sort of, you know, whatever stories happened to come along? It, yeah, something, it, it sort of grew into my beat. Partly it was just like fitting around what the older, more established reporters were doing, were f- fiercely protective of their own own beats. Uh, but also they often needed help. So the things that I initially got moving on was stuff that they just needed manpower on. So often they would be council ring rounds. You know, we'd, there are 400 councils in the UK, but we'd, we'd do a survey of 100 of them. Mm. So it would be me and then maybe two work experience people calling them up with like a, a list of questions that we'd come up with together to be ask them about, you know, spending or there was lots in the news at that time about overuse of public spending Mm. just as austerity was coming in. Um, So that was interesting. And sort of reading it back now, actually, I can see all these sort of political machinations in the news reporting that I didn't sense at the time. I just felt like we were being sent out on uh, sort of random missions. But uh, so that, that was really interesting to see. In terms of the reporting had a political slant? I suppose so but also like more to do with the flow of information like we would be given tip-offs by people in government or civil servants or SPADs, mainly actually SPADs um, which when I was just starting out I didn't really understand what their role was and how powerful they could be and particularly like how much they, they dealt with the media um, and so they'd call up and be like, have you thought about doing something like that? You, you know, and then you'd be like, no. Well, that's interesting. They'd be like, well, they're, here are five interesting cases and they all happen to be Labour councils, you know, that kind of thing. You're like, OK, well, I won't just do those, but it would the idea would catch on, mm. you know. And so um, that that was very interesting just to see how it worked. I think that that taught me a lot about, yeah, how the, how the Westminster world goes round. Um, and also I got really into, so yeah, again, these sort of manpower ones that you can make yourself useful as a young person, either doing like big FOO, FOI surveys um, and then what else, like trawling through companies' house. I spent mm. a lot of my time doing that. Um, you can set up email alerts so that particular companies or officers, if there's any changes, it sends it to you immediately. It, being in a weekly was a bit different uh, if you're on a daily paper, all you need is is one of those alerts to come through, and mm. you can immediately print it. Whereas we'd have to hope that nobody had put two and two together by by the time that Sunday came round. So mm. you you could work on say four stories in a week, and three of them would fall down because somebody else had done it. Um, so that was that was uh, that could be a bit of a nightmare if you just really sort of worked hours and hours and hours and stories and called mm. up people and and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, so that was I was there for about eighteen months um, as a junior, and then it was it was quite I think a, a stressful environment being in the news desk. It, it was at the time um, I think it's changed now, but it's very pressurised, mm. um, and I think then the news editors were under a lot of stress, and that you know it came down the levels. Mm. So it wasn't always um, a friendly environment was to be it around. Shouty? It was very shouty. Was it cruel? I've heard from <laughs> someone else who worked at that particular paper in, in a slightly different role, mm. but I've heard, you know, horror stories um, of, of how, um, not necessarily the youngest people, but kind of when you get a little bit higher up, 
um, but you're still fairly junior in the in the run of editors, it can just be absolutely brutal the treatment that you receive. Yeah, I think like in a sense, I was not protected from it, but you knew that the editors were often being shouted at a lot, um, or you know they'd go in with a, a news list. And this is standard in news, but I think in that place at that time, it, it was a particularly sort of virulent strain of, of this kind of pressure of you, they'd go in with a news list of 20 lines and come out with only three of them still standing and just be like, start again, you know, go for it. Um, so um, all the very experienced reporters knew how to handle this. You know, they'd they'd put stuff forwards at the beginning of the week, knowing it would never make it into the mm. paper and then actually hold all their good stuff to Thursday night and then drop it on the desk and then people would be like, brilliant, you know, we're just desperate mm. for good stuff that, that's going to stick. Whereas, I don't know, I, I was quite naive about the whole workings of it and I would often have my stories on the list, even quite high up as what would go into the paper and then they'd just disappear on Thursday and suddenly I'd have nothing nothing to work on and nothing to show for all, all the work or you know the you know these foi surveys can take up weeks of your time mm. um and then they would just fall apart at the last hurdle just because it didn't strike people's fancy um so yeah it, it wasn't necessarily cruel it was just highly strong mm. and um some people really thrive in that environment and i learned that i really don't um so to begin with, I, I prided myself on, on being able to sort of take the pace and, mm. and all of that kind of thing and just be like, yes, sir, I'll do that, you know, rush, rushing off and trying to do stuff fast and, and be good. And uh, if, if people are wanting to get started in news, uh, then managing editor Charles Hymas took me aside just when I first started and was like, you want to mark yourself out here. What you've just got to do is always be reliable, you know, never you know hand stuff in that's under par because you get a name for yourself and I'd really taken that to heart but being a good researcher doesn't necessarily translate to being a good reporter who brings in new stuff and and can be a powerful person Mm. in the office and I was finding it really difficult to move from being the person that was the manpower Mm. um, to to being a reporter in my own right and and sort of dealing with the editors on a level if you see what I mean Mm. Um, what was your next move so I left to go to the Telegraph um, and I was there as data reporter which was actually a a friend heard that this job was coming up and knew that um, I wasn't really sure what to do at the Sunday Times and I had had a vague thought that maybe I could try and get transferred across the way and do more features or something like that Um, and had been told that they didn't think that there would be space elsewhere the the departments were run almost in vacuums or at least from my point of view it was um so i'd been given a, a heads up from a friend who was a reporter at the telegraph and had been doing quite well there that they would be looking for someone in data reporting which now seems so far away from what i do now but at the time i was like well you know i do all these massive spreadsheet stories mm. about tax evasion and you know um yeah, I mean, that's what I did for a long time, like public spending and tax evasion, which would involve these these huge Google documents. Mm. So I was like, I could I could do data reporting, and it's it's a route. I, I felt like I needed a plan. Mm. Um, so I moved across to the Telegraph, and it was quite bad timing because the person who hired me had been made redundant by the time I started three months later. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'd been going... I just wanted to move papers to see if the, the culture would be different. Mm. Um and And found actually at that time I joined at a time when the Telegraph was 
very pessimistic. Lots of people were being laid off, mm. you know, and this had happened between me accepting the job um, and had had a big discussion with my bosses at the Sunday time about whether I was going to leave or whether I was going to change my role there, this kind of thing, and had decided to jump ship and just try something new. Um, and then sort of arrived in the Telegraph and, and yeah, the the role had sort of warped and I wasn't entirely sure what I was meant to be doing. And so that was a bit chaotic and I was only there for nine months. And uh, it, it shouldn't have been stressful because there weren't people shouting at me in the same way. I was off the news desk proper I, because I was in this data team. But it was very internally stressful, I think, you know, when you've got these ambitions for yourself mm. and I felt I should be um, making waves mm. in a way that I wasn't. And I got a few stories in the paper, but not enough to have merited this sort of move from mm. what I latterly recognised to be quite a, a good job at the Sunday Times. And so I was there for nine months and then I, I built an escape plan and went freelance. <laughs> <laughs> and I went uh, I went freelance in kind of a dramatic fashion because I, I felt I couldn't just walk out. I wanted to do something that sounded proper. Um, mm. And so I went off to the Arctic for three months and did a feature about it, but really it was it was a plan to to get out of London and and sort of think about what I wanted to do. And who was the feature for? When you say you built an escape plan, yeah, you know, how did you go about that? And it's it's very interesting to me that you obviously it was kind of almost reputational in a way. This kind of um, this kind of exit and you know your thinking about what you were going to do next. Yeah, maybe I think like I I was kind of embarrassed to leave. A job where well, you know, people were nice to me, and and it was a fine job, and it was paid okay. Um, but I was kind of embarrassed a to leave as as quickly as I did, um, and b not to really be leaving for anything in particular, mm. which is what I was doing. Um, essentially, it was I knew that whatever I was working on, I'd, I'd somebody had said to me you know, look around the office that you're in, and look at the people in the senior roles. Do you want those jobs? Mm. And then that, you know, I was like, well, I don't know what exactly I want to do, but I don't want to do that, I don't want to do that. Mm. Um, and then, you know, once you've figured that out, it's difficult to keep the momentum up, to mm. keep going in every day and working really hard if you if you don't really know what it's for. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I felt in the back of my mind I needed some kind of plan so that when people said, so what are you going to do next? I could be like, oh, I'm doing this thing. Um, and it wasn't really much of a plan. Um, yeah, what were the features of the the Cal Escape Plan? Um, the features of the Cal Escape Plan was I had to get out of the country. <laughs> I had to get off the internet. I had to stop, stop looking at the paper every day and being, being mm. like, oh, they're doing really well. They're doing really well. You know, I was in... Mm. They like, being other... Just other people. And it, in a sort of very competitive way that I hadn't realised was part of my personality. And I think the news brings that out of you yeah I think so because people are like what are you up to what are you up to and, and everyone's like that and everyone's quite competitive and mm. and I hadn't realised I would be like that um, and I was when it came down to or I soaked it up you know that, mm. that whole atmosphere um, and partly it's being in London I don't know if you agree you know there's so many young journalists around there's often people have mixers you know like they go out for drinks and always the questions are like what are you up to now and you know have you heard about somebody they're doing this and I always felt like I didn't have anything to boast about <laughs> I was just um yeah I was I was still trying to figure out exactly what I was doing it for mm. um so yeah the, the escape plan was get some perspective basically and do something practical 
do something outdoors, something that was not sitting at desk all day, which is what what I had been doing sort of latterly in the in the data job. Because um, I, I just see the the initial reporting that Sunday Times was. I learned a lot at that because it's very practical, uh, old fashioned in a sense. Because they do, you know, everything's going to be exclusive and and new and and that kind of thing. So I'd done a lot of knocking on doors and mm. and and phoning and investigations and that kind of thing. Whereas this this new role was a lot quieter, but it was also much more desk based. Um, so I just wanted to get outside. So. I made this plan to. I found this this website called Workaway, and it's a bit like woofing. It's it's you sort of volunteer to to work on farms or or mainly outdoors things. So I went to the north of Finland and worked on a, a husky kennels that do sledding for a few months. And just before I left the Telegraph, I organised to write a feature about it, and that made me feel mm. it wasn't a career move in any in any sense, but it made me feel like I had, you know, like a slightly. I had an aspect mm. of that, and that was the first feature I'd done for a newspaper magazine. So Who did you write it for? Telegraph magazine. Mm. And it became the Christmas, I th- uh, it was the Christmas issue of the Telegraph magazine, and it was on the front cover, so that was really exciting. Mm. And it, it didn't actually come out until a year after I'd come home. So it's like really slowly, you know, working its way through the system. And did you have aspirations to write books at that stage? I don't know. I think it, it, it's hard to say exactly what. No, I don't think I could say that that's what I wanted to do because something hadn't occurred. I, I knew that I liked to write and I vaguely had a sense that it would be great to be a professional writer as mm. opposed to a professional reporter. Um, but I didn't see an obvious route to it. And I hadn't yet sort of been struck by a story that I thought would be book length. Um, and I was just in a in a bit of a whirl at that mm. stage. I didn't really know what was possible. And yeah, I, the, the the money side of it worried me a lot because, you know, to, to write a book, you need to sit down for a long period of time and, mm. and go up, you know, a dozen dead ends before you settle on exactly what you're doing. So it didn't seem like an obvious thing that... Mm. one might do and now I can I can see that that was quite a blinkered way of thinking that actually it is definitely and, and people write books in their spare time or it's worth risking um, not having a job for a while if if you've got a plan you know because mm. um, when I came back from from the, the husky kennels which had done everything that I needed you know I was in a much better frame of mind I had perspective I wasn't so stressed um, so what did you do then? Because obviously the, your, your your feature was working its way through the system and it would take a year. Oh yeah, a long time. Um, <laughs> so did you start working on other features? Did you did you think, okay, I, you know, this is what I want to do, or, or where did you go from there? Um, when I came back, I yeah, I just had this vague sense I was going to freelance, um, and I came back and I moved to a house in the Lake District with a boyfriend I'd met in in the Arctic. He needed to be there for work. And I felt I could be anywhere. I just needed to be somewhere that was reasonably cheap to live. Was he a husky wrangler? Yeah, he was. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, he wanted to work as like a, a hiking guide in the Lake District. So that's why he wanted to go. Um, so I went as well. This sounds totally idyllic, but was it actually? Well, it was quite a lot of like me in a room sending emails to editors who just never replied. Mm. Um, so... 
the outside stuff was idyllic. You know, I got into running and swimming and all sorts of things like this. But the work side of things really went quiet. And then uh, I did some freelancing for the Sunday Times remotely. They quite often needed to send people to places in the north of England, either to do door knocks or that kind of thing. So I did a bit for them. I did a bit for the New Statesman online, which was good because it was an outlet for the kind of thing I wanted to write, but did not really pay. Like they paid, I think I got £50 or £80 or something for pieces that would take me a week. Mm. Um, But it meant that I felt like, you know, you're you're making headway Mm. in a sense. And it was getting more like the kind of thing I could feel myself writing. And it was there kind of out of a lack of other work to do that I came up with what later turned into my first book. Mm. Um, I did a... Yeah, while while I was considering leaving London, I'd I'd gone on this trip to Skye with my mother, which is where she grew up. Um, And we sort of went around all of these family sites where she'd grown up and this kind of thing, and had gone into an archive centre in Skye um, where there was a display about a man called Angus Macmillan who latterly it turned out we were related to and had a really uh, sort of difficult and dark personal story um, in in colonialism in Australia. He'd been a settler and a pioneer in an area called Gippsland um, and then latterly he's been implicated as a leader of massacres in that area which I, I discovered quite soon afterwards because I, I was interested in him as a character. All I knew about him was that he was an explorer and there was a map of the place he'd explored. It struck me as you know, incredibly romantic, so I thought maybe I could do a travel article about it or something. So I did a bit of um, research, mainly out of curiosity, and uh, and then found out actually the story of him was was far darker and far grimmer than you know anyone in my family knew. Mm. Um, and, and so was it at that yeah. point when you started realizing there was a lot more meat on the bones that you thought actually this has the scope for a project that is going to be much more than a feature article? Yeah, yeah, sort of. Um, I, th- I think so. I, I became really fascinated, and I was collecting um, cuttings from like the Australian press that mentioned him, and I ordered a few books that were about him, not really knowing where I was going with it, um, thinking maybe I could do a feature. And then um, I applied to the arts funding body in Scotland, pardon me, called Creative Scotland, asking for funding to be able to fly over a lot of the information wasn't really readily available. It was in, in libraries in, in rural Gippsland. So I flew over, thanks to them, actually the, getting the funding from Creative Scotland really kick-started it. And if anyone is sort of trying to get moving on projects like this, especially at the beginning of your career when it can be hard to find backers, financial backers, arts bodies like Creative Scotland or there was another one, Arts Trust Scotland, which was smaller and does, like, I think six awards of a £1,000 a year to emerging artists, as they de- described it. Um, so I had backing from both of them just to go out and, and learn more about it. Um, and then their support, not only in terms of money, but I got a letter from the person who sort of made the decision, being like, this sounds like a project that could work, we think it could be mm. a book that would sell... And you, you, you know that that is a big boon. You know when you're when you're just starting out to hear that kind of thing mm. and be like, yeah, I thought so. Actually, yes, okay. <laughs> and then you go out there and you get more and more invested. And then mm. I realised the more I looked into it, the more fascinating a story it was, and how not only was he an interesting person, but he was a sort of case study of this bigger story mm. that could be told through his personal story. And that's when 
I don't know, it just seemed like it could be a book. Mm. And uh, that mainly came out from being a bit bored, not having enough work on and having a lot of time is a big deal. You know, I, th- mm. I think I'm not sure that, you know, when I was working full time, I found it really difficult to work on my own projects in the evenings. I just felt exhausted. Um, and so I always give people terrible career advice, which is like, throw it all in, you know, like go your own way. And, and uh, if you're broke for a while, um, you know, maybe you need to be and, mm. and you just need headspace. Headspace is the most valuable thing. Um, what were the mechanics of getting an agent, getting a publisher, stuff like that? Um, what happened? So I'd written a piece for an online magazine called Aeon, mm-hmm. um, which does some really great um, sort of conceptual essays. Um, and this was uh, an article about, I think it was about, well, I know it was about mushroom picking and and I, I really enjoyed writing it. And it was uh, a step beyond what I'd done before. It was much longer and it was more descriptive and that kind of thing. And I got an email from an American agent being like, have you ever thought about doing a book? And I was like, Actually, funny you should ask. Um, mm. I had uh, the the very beginnings of what would turn into a big proposal, and I sent it to mm. him, and he was like, "Listen, it's not really a, an American story. I can't really see this being big in America, but I do know a British agent." So he introduced me to a young British agent who I spoke to, and at the same time, having spoken to a friend of mine, Alex Christoffi, who's also a book editor and a novelist in his own right. Um, I was speaking to him about this and, you know, sort of asking about this agent and had he heard of her and this kind of thing. And he said, also, you know, somebody I used to work with called Sophie um, is great and this sounds exactly the kind of project she'd be interested in. So I sent it to her at the same time. And then uh, having having two people interested at the same time in the same project turned out to speed up the process a lot because mm. if, if you just email things in cold, I know people can wait for months and months and months mm. to, to get a response. So once the first person had read it and said, look, I'd be interested in, in representing you, I emailed Sophie to say, thanks for your time, but don't worry about it. I've actually got another agent. And uh, she got in touch really fast and was like, OK, I've read it and I love it. You know, it's great. Let's, you know, let's sign up. And um, that was great because then I had to sort of think about the two competing visions that they described, mm. um, the different publishers that they thought it could go to and that kind of thing, and then decide who I thought it would suit best and how did those um those visions differ and how did you end up making the decision because obviously the agent relationship is one that can last a very long time mm. and well beyond one project mm. and is and is very personal yeah um, and how did you make that decision what were the things that mattered to you when deciding which route to go down um what mattered the most to me actually i i wrote to i wrote to somebody i'd worked with at the week who was a published novelist and so um, I knew he would have some advice and I just said what's the most important thing and he said partly it's to do with contact you know is this person going to be able to get it out to the right people and partly it's just to do with do you get on Um, I got on with with both of these agents um, but felt maybe that one of them yeah one of them had said I'm not sure about the sample that you've done Part of it's great, but part of it I feel is a risk. I, I'd written it as a sort of um, like a narrative nonfiction. It was mm. almost in a in a fictional style, um, but everything was everything was based on fact. But I'd written mm. it through so that it wasn't sort of attributing it here, there, and everywhere. Um, and she said, "You know, this is risky," and I, I knew that. But I also felt like that was the most vivid way mm. of um, 
telling this particular story, it had to sort of open with a scene of a massacre. Mm. Um, and I don't think I put any speech in because I didn't feel that I could accurately portray what they might actually say to each other. But I, I was describing who was there and this kind of thing. And I, I felt very strongly that that was the way to go. And then Sophie, who's my agent, was like, I thought that was great. I think that's the way that we should go. And um, both of them had suggested kind of similar editors and publishing houses we should submit to. So it more came down to that. Mm. And just, uh, yeah, I, 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 I really sort of rated Sophie's opinion on it. And that that's turned out to be a good... Well, I mean, I'm sure the other agent is wonderful as well. Um, but I, I have, you know, kept that relationship with Sophie all the way through and I really rate her decisions and her opinions, first opinions on, on reading everything uh, now. That's been a great... What were the complexities of writing about your family? Yeah. Um, or were there any? I don't know. I think I should have thought about this more at the very beginning um, because... So I, I was writing about someone who we're reasonably distantly related to so he was my great 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 uncle um so it wasn't somebody that any of us had known within our lifetimes so i think that made it easier but at the same time i was lucky that my family reacted in the way they did because it it sort of didn't occur to me until quite far down the line that you know this impacted on them as well that mm. i was writing about someone in our family not just not just mine um they've all responded really nicely and I think partly it helps that they feel similarly about it you know they they had thought that he was a hero then they were very shocked to find out this sort of tussling of, of sort of guilt and, and feeling sort of attached to someone mm. uh, in in a strange way they, they've had a similar reaction to um, we're cut from quite similar political cloth I think but I think I should have had that conversation explicitly at the beginning and said I'm going to write about this is that okay um, if I was going to do that now I think I'd try and just be a lot braver about it but because it was my first book and I, I didn't really believe it was going ahead until quite mm. late on in the process it just feels like this sort of vanity project you're working on um, I left it until quite late down the line to be like okay so I've I've sold this book and it's about someone in our family and you know that kind of thing so it worked out well but I could have handled it better I think um, and that the whole writing process of that book was an enormously um, educational process, mm. uh, as, as you'll both know. I mean, um, just constructing narratives on that scale, learning to break things down into chapters and, and also balancing facts and description and all mm. of that kind of thing taught me to be a lot braver in my writing. And, and I think since then, I keep trying to sort of be more brave and... And think about things deeply. Um, you know, in, in news, people... I felt I was kind of missing a little bit of my brain. I didn't really understand news lines, um, which made me not excel in a news environment. <laughs> I just... I couldn't sort of formulate things fast enough. I like to think about things for ages, and I'm never really sure about what I think about, which can work in, you know, a discursive essay. But if you're calling people up to ask them for quotes and stuff, you need to know. You know, you'd be like, that's bad because of x y and z or this is interesting because of the current political environment um whereas i like to read about stuff for days and days and days and and sort of mill about it and discuss it in the pub and you know this kind of thing so it, it's a style of writing that suits my way of thinking a lot better i think and did you find that um your the style of writing that you developed for writing for newspapers and, and writing kind of in shorter form did you have to um explicitly kind of 
break out of that in order to write this book or was it more a process of just you know breaking things down into chapter which essentially can be mm. perceived to be like an essay and then you you know proceed kind of almost as normal yeah I had to completely change I'd had to completely change my my style of writing when I started as a reporter and I had to sort of break it back down to try and get back towards um, my natural style which is well now I, I guess I, I try and do a lot more nature writing sort of lyrical descriptions this kind of thing mood and you know all, all the kind of thing that you don't have space for in mm. news writing um, which which I enjoy and so yeah I had to I had to stop writing like that and, and so directly and the way that you write news stories is almost the opposite of what you want to do in a lot of creative non-fiction because you get the facts out there to begin with and then sort of the further you get away from the, the top um, you start with a key point and then by the time you're at the bottom you're the paragraphs which depending on how long the column is they'll just cut out you know um, so just you've got to restructure your way of thinking um, learning to write introductions all of this kind of thing you know um, yeah I had to change my style a lot and that felt frightening I think to begin with uh, in fact that that sort of piece I wrote about huskies which was written as a diary um, I found that really difficult to write I think I spent three weeks writing 3,000 words or something just because it was a style I hadn't written in for a long time and it felt really bearing and, and sort of personal which mm. I hadn't done at all for, for years and in my work at least um, yeah so so I, at the same time, news taught me a lot um, in terms of getting a lot of information out there, um, how to figure out what sources are reliable, um, how to quote, you know, just and just being brave enough to pick up the phone and, and, mm. and speak to people. Um, what was the research process for the book? Um, so I went out to Australia three times for periods of four to six weeks in length. Um, and what I wanted to do was to reconstruct the life of Macmillan and of Gippsland and the Ghanai Kurnai people at that time um, so a lot of it was going into libraries just to find the right books and I also really needed to get in touch with the Aboriginal group who were there and I didn't know exactly how to go about doing that, especially I knew that this sort of initial conversations with people would be difficult, I'd be like hi I'm, I'm a relative of someone who's killed many of your um, ancestors, you know, let's chat. You know, it's it's a weird conversation starter to to have with anyone. Um, so yeah, I didn't really know how that was going to work, and I was quite lucky in terms of um, I got in touch with a woman called Jeannie who'd written a play about Macmillan, and she put me in touch with a young photographer and his friend uh, Stephen Payton, who's a Ghana Kurnai artist, maybe one year older than me. Um, so we were like 27, 28, and we all went on a road trip together of all these sort of cultural sites. And that became a, a big chunk of the book was like the conversations we had in the car, um, you know, the places that we went to, trying to superimpose these historical accounts of massacres onto actual places. And um, that that was a big thing. So just falling in with Stephen also meant that I met his family, who were all um, really notable in the Ghana Kurnai land rights movement. Um, and sort of coming in that way, sort of less cold calling, mm. meant that they were much more likely to sort of respond and, and, and take my questions seriously and, and just have these sort of big discussions about, you know, intergenerational guilt, which is what I wanted to discuss. Um, that's difficult to do with a stranger, but if you've, you can come in as a sort of a friend of a friend 
mm. who's interested um, and has got an obvious reason to be interested because I was sort of looking into this family line. Um, yeah, that that made a big difference and and made me feel like this could definitely be a big. I had enough there to to go in, and I'd done enough thinking, and it, it felt very um, affecting, I guess. Changing gear slightly, and also sort of changing. Um, time frame one thing we talk about with a lot of authors is kind of what happens when the book is being published and the kind of the mechanisms mm. for marketing and the aftermath and um how you publicize a book and what that experience is like um can you talk a little bit about that with, with this book yeah yeah so um i worked on the proposal i sent it to sophie and she agreed to represent me and then we worked on it together before we sent it out um and then it went out to several publishing houses and we, we decided to go with, with William Collins. Um, I really got on well with the editor, Arabella. Um, and then from signing with Arabella, um, I had a deadline of 12 months to finish the copy and hand in some images as well, which came in with that. And then after that, it was another 12 months before it appeared. So it was launched and, and appeared mm. on shelves, during which time, you know, there's uh, a little bit of rewriting and then also like a long gap of worry and not really doing anything but sort of feeling very anxious about this thing that's not yet appeared um, in which yeah I, I don't know you, you talk about footnotes and images and you, you know you do the pr final proofreading that kind of thing um, which is off and on for a year um, and then uh, yeah what, what after that and how about the kind of the marketing and um, how you present it? Because like you say, you, you hand it in and there's a long, you know, even at the best of times, there's usually a fairly long period between mm -hmm. handing it in and then the actual book appearing in people's hands. And then you've then got this whole process for how you get it into people's hands, how you talk about it, mm. how you publicise it and, you know, whether you write things about it and, you know, all those all those kind of mechanisms that you don't even think about when you're writing the book. Yeah, right, right. Um, well, you, I had a meeting with um, people who worked in publicity and talked about... Because I, I had been a freelance journalist, I guess I was behind this idea of sort of pitching things off the back of the book. And, and um, so I wrote pieces for... I think I had a... It was like a, a travel piece in Metro, but it was an excerpt from the book. Um, I had an excerpt published in in the Australian magazine because yeah it was being launched in two countries at once mm. because uh, in a sense maybe even the, the bigger audience might be in Australia because it's such a pressing um, not even historical but like contemporary political concern mm. you know this question of reconciliation between the white community and the Aboriginal community so it yeah um, I, I had a lot of guidance I think from the publicity team I was uh, pleased with with that and they helped me um think about who to get in touch with out of old editors I'd written for and also they had their own contacts so we threw out ideas um, it almost but didn't become our book of the week on Radio 4 which would have been very exciting um, but you know that's always a it's because Cassidy had taken all the slots uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> well congratulations it, it, it's, it's meant to make a, a big difference in sales and that kind of thing she's, she's uh, two times book of the week not yet one, one and one and uh, in a bit, hopefully. That's um, very exciting. Yeah, uh, it, it it does. It's funny. Um, uh, one thing that I a piece of advice that I was told is that you get 
you know, a fair amount of pressure to, to write for newspapers and magazines and to Mm-mm. promote it that way. Um, and then you're on radio for 30 seconds. And, <laughs> and that can make so much more difference. Um, but I, well, yeah, I'm interested in other people's experience. Yeah, because what they don't warn you is that, um, like, being an author has got such a big strand of public speaking. Yes. Uh, and that's not something you're really trained for after like a year of sitting alone in, in your house. No. <laughs> you're almost anti-trained. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It takes quite a long time to, to stop also thinking in terms of like tens of thousands of words and just have like sort of snappy blurbs about, you know, what what, what the book's about, that kind of thing. Uh, so I found that really nerve-wracking. About, um, I went on Radio 4 with Libby Purvis and was like shaking all the way up to the studio. <laughs> um, it, it, actually, you know, it, everyone's super friendly and everyone else is mm. nervous as well, so... Um, that was kind of exciting. And we always, uh, we ask everyone about the financial side of their Mm-mm. writing lives. And both with the book and with the other journalism, how have you kind of pieced together your, your financial, and with grants and residencies? And yeah, yeah. I mean, the the question of grants, as I mentioned before, uh, especially starting off moving into, like, l- long form or, like, book-length writing, that was a big uh, boon. Not, uh, not just in terms of how much money, because... Um, I think Creative Scotland gave me, I think, just short of £4,000, which um, almost all of which was spent on travel for the research trips. Um, And then um, I did freelancing, but it was a a small amount in terms of income. Um, So that it was very touch and go for... I guess a couple of years. And how do you? Uh, we've spoken to a few people who've mentioned sort of grants and residencies. Mm. How do you go about finding the ones that are relevant to what you're writing, and um, applying for them? What matters in the application process? Yeah, just um, read what they tell you to write and answer everything, because mm. um, they are looking, particularly in terms of grants, they have the money and they are wanting to give it to people. So if you qualify, there's no reason you shouldn't get it. Um, so you need to show, for example, that that you have the talent or the the writing skills so you need to have a bit of a portfolio um you need to have i think having a budget for what you would want to spend it on is very mm. important so be really realistic they're they're also i didn't ask them to give me money that would go into my personal account but i think these artistic bodies have not necessarily the expectation but the hope that people will earn money from from writing and from art and this kind of thing so if you can my way of showing that I was contributing to the project was putting a financial value on my contribution in kind as they call Mm. it which is just my hours so I said I'll work on the book proposal that will come out of this project for three months full time approximately and I value I don't know I think I said £100 a day or Mm. something you know it's a number that you're taking out of the air but that gives them a a sense of how much you're personally invested in the project because that's you need need to demonstrate that as well that made a big difference Uh, and then once once the book came out um, I found things like applying for uh, yeah I applied again for Creative Scotland for a later project and I got a residency at somewhere called Gladstone's Library Mm. Uh, which was wonderful um, and that has been I haven't applied for so many things but I think I've found it easier just since I've had the book out because you've got much more of a, a portfolio of work um, and partly it's you, you're much more clearly you know, uh, someone working in the arts as mm. opposed to working in journalism a lot of these funds aren't open to straightforward works of journalism you have to show it's got literary merit mm. so that's a, that's a big thing as well what was the work that you did on the NHS and 
for the for the Wellcome Trust was that how did that kind of oh yeah work? actually they got in touch with me completely out of the blue quite recently so this was a piece I wrote for them about six months ago less than that um, that I was actually away on holiday and they got in touch I'd written some pieces for a magazine called New Humanist um, which were sort of healthy or sciencey um, I'd written one about transhumanism or life after death and, and people who, who want to survive through cryogenics and I'd written one about like the abstract beauty of mathematics and I think she'd sort of stumbled on these um, articles and was looking for someone who could write about something maybe technical but in a accessible way um, and so she got in touch from the Wellcome Trust and said look I've got this project six pieces for it. yeah and that's something that's that's only been happening to me last couple of years as people sort of getting in touch out of the blue to offer mm. work um which makes a big difference in terms of how much time you have to sink into to finding finding work um and and that turned into actually quite a well-paid project which has sort of enabled me to do research on something else and uh certainly with freelancing and and longer term stuff it's just such a like financial juggling act to mm. have money coming in from one way often there's long lags and Especially with books, you know, it can be um, months after you agree and, and sign for money to actually reach your account. And all the time, the clock's ticking on you actually having to hand stuff in and doing all the research, this kind of thing. So you have to have some money to do stuff with while you're waiting for money to come into your account. So mm. um, after a while, it gets easier. Um, so now, yeah, now I'm feeling much more comfortable with that. But um yeah, for for a long time it's sort of like scrabbling around or not being able to pay rent so that you can pay for flights to do something else, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and, yeah, some people do it better than others and I, I'm only just getting my head around it, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, we were speaking just before we came in, I think this is probably our final question, but it's sort of a future-looking one. Yeah. You say you're now working on another um, project. Can you talk a little bit more about... Yeah, I think it's just about to be announced I've I've sold a new book which is really exciting it's it's quite a different book it's uh yeah as I, I said to you earlier a sort of weird nature book it's about nature when when people aren't looking nature in abandoned spaces uh human impacted spaces and, and how they can recover um it's it's going to be a, a bit of a different book and maybe more similar in tone to the kind of writing that I've done for Granta and a couple of similar literary publications which is takes yeah, it's like creative nonfiction. It takes aspects of reportage, but it also weaves into nature writing and, and, and it's much more about atmosphere. Um, so I'm going to be going to places where perhaps there's been an environmental disaster or there's been an economic disaster and everyone's left. Um, so I've got 12 different places around the world and then each one is a case study of um, different interesting ecological or even psychological processes that are all to do with abandonment well i'm excited (laughs) it sounds great cal thanks so much for talking to us well thanks for having me and best of luck going forward thanks that's great thank you we hope you enjoyed that now from us simon what have you been up to uh i have received the copy edits back for the first half of my book which is very exciting uh a very industrious woman has been working hard to make the text better and cleaner and i've also started work on a piece for esquire magazine what about you 
I have been doing publicity bits and pieces for uh, the, the Golden Thread, which is my new book and which is going to be out in all good bookshops on October the 4th. Did a bit of filming yesterday, which is mortifying. Apparently I didn't have expressive enough hands. Who knew that, that was an issue and who knew that that was something you needed to worry about I've as an author? I've always known that, I just never said anything. <laughs> so yeah, that's what I've been up to. Uh... Very good. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Acom. And me, Cassie Sinclair. Our producer is uh, Nicola Keane. Zara Hankier handles our social media. Our graphic design is by James Edgar. And our score is by Jess Danheiser. You can find us on all manner of social media. Find us on Twitter at Take Take Notes Always. Yes, that's right. And on Instagram and Facebook by searching Always Take Notes. You can also um, become a patron on Patreon. Just search Always Take Notes. And if you've enjoyed the show, please do think about leaving a review on iTunes. It really helps. Thank you very much. 